This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. So, um, in thinking about what to talk about today, I decided to respond to a question from my own Sangha uh, once a month on the first Saturday of the month at midnight, which would be during the day in Europe, I hold an international meeting. And for the last uh, four months, we've been covering the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. And yet I've also been fielding a lot of other questions that people have on their minds. And the one that was asked of me at the last meeting uh, in hopes that I would give a talk about it for the following month, which uh, I guess would be September now, was what is the relationship between our karma and finding our true purpose in life? And I thought that was a very interesting question. And I keep getting variations on that question. And also sometimes, uh, which is very few times now, when I have a little spare time, I will go on Quara and respond to some of the questions in the Buddhist uh, area. And I get a lot of questions about karma, rebirth, and things like that. And I think a lot of people are, one, way too caught up in the idea, and two, have a lot of mistaken notions about it, at least from a Buddhist point of view. So I wanted to present a talk responding to all of this about karma and rebirth and the bodhisattva vows and how they interrelate. So I'm going to begin a PowerPoint presentation now. And uh, there we go. So hopefully you're all seeing this. You're not seeing the presenter notes, right? You're just seeing the, the basic screen, Karma and Arval? Yes. Okay, good. That's what I want. So first of all, uh, some definitions. So what is reincarnation or rebirth? And of course, in Sanskrit, they don't use these terms, reincarnation and rebirth. Uh, the Sanskrit terms, which I won't attempt to pronounce now, may basically mean something like rebirth or redeath. Uh, but in English, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, and, and I follow this, I would prefer to say rebirth and reincarnation. So why? Because reincarnate that term assumes that there's some kind of unchanging soul or spirit living many lifetimes gathering experiences learning or maybe unlearning but in any case that it's a soul or spirit that keeps going into the flesh incarnating but that the, the solar spirit doesn't change that it's some essential essence uh, this is something that dogen criticizes heavily in the Bendoa. So I would recommend reading that part of the Bendoa where he talks about the Seneca heresy as being a non-Buddhist teaching. And he is very correct in that. Um, and also this has sometimes been mistakenly taken as evidence that Dogen didn't believe in the basic teachings of Buddhist rebirth. And I think that would be to over interpret what he is saying in the Bendoa. He is, uh, Dogen's criticizing a specific way of thinking about 
the whole process of life, whether from moment to moment or from lifetime to lifetime. Now, the other term rebirth uh, is the way I take it, the Buddhist concept that there is no unchanging soul or spirit or essence, but there is a mental continuum. There's this process that can span many lifetimes. And of course, this happens moment to moment, not just lifetime to lifetime. So often when people are asking me about, well, how can there be rebirth if there's no soul or spirit? You know, I tell them like, right now you have no self, no soul, no spirit in any inherent, essential, fixed, independent way. So you tell me, how are you able to go on from moment to moment experiencing things and feeling a sense of continuity and making decisions if right now there is no self or soul? Um, and if you think this is just a Buddhist point of view, read some neurology, uh, read about uh, developmental psychology. Uh, it is no longer the monopoly of Buddhism to say that somehow we have a continuous sense of experience and, and a consistent sense of self, even though it is constructed, the sense of self. Moving along, uh, the Buddha in the middle length discourses talks about how to, at the moment of conception, there is the physical process, of course, the man and the woman and the seed and the egg and all of that, but there is also something else that must be present for there to be a conception. And what this something else is, is strangely called a Gandharva, which means basically odor eater or, or um, consumer of fragrances. And it's the name of a type of celestial spirit, but here it's not being used in that sense. It's, it's being used in the sense of some ethereal carryover from a being that has already passed away. And what this carryover is, is the bundle of habits and impulses and that continuum of consciousness that is now entering into this new coming together of matter and form to set up a new set of five aggregates. And the Theravadan school, there is no interval between the death of one being and the conception of a new being. Mm. And East Asian Buddhism, China, Korea, Japan, but also in Tibet, they take their cues from texts like the Abhidharma Kosha of Asabandhu that says that there is some intermediate existence where there's a kind of ethereal form. And of course, the other four aggregates of, of feeling, perception, volitions, and consciousness that lives in a kind of confused state and is flailing about in this intermediate realm or bardo, they call it in Tibet, until it finds that place of conception. And curiously, it's described in some texts as the spirit uh, see, falling in love with the one partner and feeling jealous of the other. So you have this whole Oedipal complex going on. And this, is, this idea is coming up thousands of years before Freud. So I find all that very interesting. Um, I, I will note that I remember when my daughter was just a toddler and my wife and I would like embrace or hug each other. She would get very upset and try to get between us and like push us apart. Like she was afraid that she was being excluded. And I couldn't help but think of this whole idea of the, the spirit um, coming into the moment of conception while its parents are together 
out of infatuation with the one and jealousy of the other. And then acting, you know, my daughter acting that way as a toddler, it made me think maybe people observed that kind of behavior and came up with this idea of why these intermediate spirits would be drawn to the moment of conception in that way. Nevertheless, that is the idea in Northern and East Asian Buddhism. Now, uh, this idea that the Gandharva is a personification or transmission of mental habit patterns and memory should not be construed as saying that there is some fixed, independent, unchanging entity. It is, again, simply a stream of consciousness that continues or contributes to the conception and birth of another body-mind complex. In the connected discourses, the Buddha says, it would be better monks for the uninstructed worldling to take as self this body composed of the four great elements, earth, air, fire, water, rather than the mind. For what reason? Because this body composed of the four great elements is seen standing for one year, two years, etc. You get the picture. But that which is called mind or mentality or consciousness arises as one thing and ceases as another by day and by night. Just as a monkey roaming through the forest grabs hold of one branch, lets that go and grabs another, then lets that go and grabs still another, so too that which is called mind and mentality and consciousness arises as one thing and ceases as another day and by night. So, you know, philosophically, we have this kind of bias that it is the mind that is a fixed entity, that there's some kernel of subjectivity that remains the same. But in the Buddhist point of view, each moment of consciousness is a moment of this coming together of many factors as part of this ongoing process. There is nothing solid or stable there. And in fact, I would strongly suggest that one of the things that happens when you are sitting in meditation is you slow yourself down enough to stop glossing over what mind is, what consciousness and awareness is, and you start seeing how granular it is, how each moment of consciousness is a new coming together of many different things and not just one thing that is continuous uh, as an unchanging fixed entity. I hope I'm making that part clear. Uh, whoops. There we go. Uh, another uh, discussion about this is from the questions of King Melinda, which I don't know if uh, you're all familiar with it or not, but um, there is the record in the Pali Canon of one of the early Greek kings uh, in the Kashmir or Punjab area in about 150 BCE, having a dialogue with a Buddhist monk. Uh, this king was called Menander and he ruled somewhere in Bactria, which is now in Afghanistan, the area of Afghanistan. And he, the monk that he was speaking to was named Nagasena. And he asked many of the questions that people still ask. And Nagasena responded in the way that many of us are still responding. So here's an example from that relating to the idea of rebirth. King Melinda said, Reverend Nagasena, is it the case that one does not transmigrate and yet is reborn? Yes, sire, one does not transmigrate and yet is reborn. How, Reverend Nagasena, is it that one does not transmigrate and yet is reborn? 
make a simile. Suppose, sire, some man were to light a lamp from another lamp. Did one lamp pass over to the other? No, revered sir. In the same way, sire, one does not transmigrate and yet is reborn. So there's this idea of the passing on of these elements and not just a continuous entity going through time unchanging. Uh, just like the, uh, the flames of a lamp, they're constantly flickering, constantly burning new material, um, new parts of the candle or of the, the, um, that core of the candle, the little rope. Um, and yet it seems consistent. It seems to be the same flame, but you know that it's not. Each moment, it's, it's a new part of that process of, of the heat and the flammable and the oxygen all coming together in a certain way afresh each moment so now let's look at karma what is karma uh, the word means action it's a sanskrit word for action it does not mean fate or destiny or anything like that and in the buddhist context it means any wholesome or unwholesome intentional action of body speech or mind and you know People say that, you know, like if you win the lottery, well, that was your good karma. Or if you get hit by a car, that was your bad karma. But actually, karma is not stuff that happens to you. It's what you do. And it's getting conflated with another word, vipaka phala. Uh, vipaka phala, I think that's the way it's supposed to be pronounced. The PH is a p, not a f sound. And this refers to the ripened fruit of karma. So ripening or fruition, that's what vipakapala is. So when something happens to you, that's not karma, that's vipakapala. When you do something, that's your karma that you are setting in motion. And here we have the full guy with the dominoes and what goes around comes around. It's a lot more complicated than that, though, uh, when you look at the Buddhist text. I'm just going to tackle a little bit of the complications here. It's not so simple or straightforward as some people think. Um, one aspect of this is something related to what the Buddha taught in the Middle Length Discourses, where he says, sentient uh, students, student, beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions, they originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as inferior and superior. So I find this very interesting because that karma is not just something that I am doing, like I am separate from my acts. And consequently, the vipakapala is not just stuff that's going to happen to me. Karma is what I am. I am what I do. If I am not a fixed thing, then I am all these processes. And these processes include, but are not restricted to, my intentional acts of body, thought, in word and that will in turn create who i'm going to be in the next moment coming forward it will contribute to all the conditions that will bring about a new me in the next moment never mind whether the next moment is another lifetime or just another moment of this present lifetime quote unquote now there is also this idea that karma determines everything. And the Buddha actually refuted this, at least in the, in the Pali materials. 
So I want to share this rather long passage because, uh, and there's another one I'm going to share. It's a little long because I think this is so important that the Buddha is refuting the teaching of karmic determinism. He is refuting the idea that karma determines everything that happens to us or everything that, uh, and especially that it would determine how we are going to react in each moment. He says in the numerical discourses, now monks, I approached those ascetics and Brahmins holding the first view that ends in a doctrine of inaction and said to them, is it true as they say that you venerable ones teach and hold the view that whatever a person experiences, all that is caused by past action? When they affirmed it, I said to them, if that is so venerable sirs, then it is due to past action done in a former life that people kill, steal, and engage in sexual misconduct that they speak falsehood, utter malicious words, <clears throat> speak harshly and indulge in idle talk, that they are covetous and malevolent and hold false views. But those who have recourse to past action as the decisive factor will lack the impulse and effort for doing this or not doing that, since they have no real valid ground for asserting this or that ought to be done or ought not to be done, the terms ascetics does not rightly apply to them, living without mindfulness and self-control. What he's saying is that the people who say that karma determines everything are, it's the Buddhist equivalent of people in the West saying, well, the devil made me do it. You know, I can't, I couldn't control myself or that's just how I am. Right. But the Buddha is saying that while your past actions will condition what happens in this moment, it carries over as a conditioning factor. It is not the only factor. And that there is room to make a new decision, to steer in another direction, that uh, we always have a choice on some level. Also, the Buddha teaches uh, in the Connected Discourses uh, that there are other reasons why things, why we experience things aside from just the fruition of our past actions. He says, uh, or someone says to the Buddha, Master Gautama, there are some ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant, all that is caused by what was done in the past. What does Master Gautama say about this? Some feelings, Sivaka, he responds, arise here originating from bile disorders. That some feelings arise here originating from bile disorders, one can know for oneself, and that is considered to be true in the world. Now, when those ascetics and Brahmins hold such a doctrine of view as this, whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant, painful, or neither, all that is caused by what was done in the past, they overshoot what one knows by oneself, and they overshoot what is considered to be true in the world. Therefore, I say that this is wrong on the part of those ascetics and Brahmins. And then he goes on to list phlegm disorders, wind disorders, an imbalance of the three, changing climate, careless behavior caused by assault. In other words, the free will of other people doing things to you for, well, assault, obviously negative, but they could do positive things. The result of karma is just one of these many factors that will condition what's happening in the present moment. And as we saw in the previous slide, you are free in the way you react to that. You are free in the way you choose to interpret that um, and respond to it. 
you may continue the previous habits from before, and that might be the easiest thing to do. Um, there's a passage in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra that I found very amusing where it says that uh, bodhisattvas do not respond to other bodhisattvas who say something critical of them, the same to you. <laughs> and that phrase, this is from Edward Cohn's translation, the same to you, buddy. Uh, it just sounded so modern to me how people would talk. Um, yeah, I, people have always been that way. You know, you want to respond to negativity with negativity. If someone is nice to you, you want to respond in a nice way. Um, and to break that habitual pattern is very hard. To even catch yourself falling into the habitual pattern is very hard. And again, that's where our Buddhist practice comes in. We slow ourselves down enough to be able to reflect on our patterns, on our habitual tendencies and to make determinations to change that. And sometimes even when you're going about in your daily life, uh, you can catch yourself in the act and steer it in a different direction. So I'll find myself sometimes having some negative thought arising about someone and I'll see that for what it is and stop and just say Daimoku silently to myself, you know, Namyo, Gekyo, Namyo, Gekyo, to kind of turn myself around from that. Uh, so in the Pali tradition, uh, in, the, in the Theravada tradition um, that follows the Pali commentaries on the, the Buddha's discourses, they came up with this idea, the five certainties, uh, which uh, I have not noticed is taught as such in East Asian or Tibetan Buddhism, which I think is a real shame, though I have noted that Nichiren in one of his letters refers to something very similar. Um, this is a scheme, schema outlined in the Molya Sivaka Sutta, which I just previously cited, and it, it is uh, in the found in the Abhidharma, Abhidhamma, sorry, the Pali, and it talks about five modes or niyamas, which means certainties or order of things of dependent origination, and these modes are <clears throat> physical or inorganic, which is called utu niyama. So that's basically just physics. And then there's the biological, bija niyama. Bija means seed. And then there's a non-volitional mental niyama, the mano or chitta niyama. This I find very interesting that 2,500 years ago, they recognized that there are mental acts that are not conscious, that are not under the control of the conscious mind. In other words, they are not intentional and do not produce karma. And then there's the ethical, the kama or karma niyama, to use the Sanskrit. And that is our intentional actions that are either wholesome or unwholesome or neutral. And then there's the spiritual, the dhamma or dharma niyama. And this one I take to mean selfless acts and the way things are according to the process of attaining liberation. So these are five different types of causality that Buddhism recognizes. Only one of these is karma. So, you know, all the things that are happening to us that we experience, um, of course, the way we interpret that is largely determined by uh, our habit patterns and our mental habit patterns. But not everything that happens to us is necessarily 
of the, the fruition of something that we did intentionally. Um, but of course, what we directly have control of is our intentional actions. So I'm, I'm thinking here that um, the old story about the person who wanted to make the whole world smooth so he could walk without getting his feet hurt or cut. And so this, this king is trying to find a way to get everybody to sweep all the ground and level it. And of course, this is impossible. And so this, this ancient king is finally shown that it would be much simpler to just make some shoes, right? So he can control that part and protect himself. So in the same way, we can't control everything that happens. We are not directly in control of everything that happens, but we can do things that will control uh, or, or at least um, largely shape how we interpret, how we react. Now, uh, where does this kind of karma lead us of acting in a way that is deluded, that assumes that there is some fixed self that keeps trying to find some kind of fixed, unconditional happiness among conditioned things? Uh, where does the where do these karmic habit patterns that are not leavened by prajna or wisdom lead? Uh, where they lead is transmigration with difference in limitations or differences in limitations. In Japanese, this is called bundan shoji. And basically it leads to compulsory rebirth within the so-called six destinies wherein sentient beings are differentiated and limited by the effects of their wholesome and unwholesome karma. So uh, here is a rendition of the wheel of birth and death that is popularized by Tibetan Buddhism and in the bottom of the six regions in the middle part of this wheel, you have the hell realms and the top, you have the heavenly realms to the um, left towards the top, you have a human realm. Below that, you have the animals. On the other side, you have the hungry ghosts towards the bottom right. And then towards the uh, top on the right, but not the very top of the asuras or fighting demons. And, this is a mythological way of understanding our different styles of confusion and reactivity in the world. Uh, sometimes things are very pleasant. We feel like we can coast along and we can get complacent. Um, sometimes just things seem hopeless. Sometimes we are overcome by our uh, obsessions and craving. Sometimes we're able to be reasonable. Sometimes we feel a, a constant need to uh, compete and, and then sometimes we're just acting in kind of an animalistic mode, looking for instant gratification, um, identifying with the pack and trying to find our, our, peck, our status in the pecking order and things like that, very animalistic kind of behavior and not really using self-reflection and thought. So these are all these different modes of the unenlightened habit patterns that carry us on from moment to moment and from lifetime to lifetime, according to traditional teaching. And again, this is where in our practice, we can really reflect on these. And this kind of symbolic imagery, if you don't care to take it literally, um, can really help us. We, we can reflect on, you know, have I been acting in a way that is animalistic or like a fighting demon? Have I been coasting in the heavenly realm? You know, we can really reflect on 
the nature and quality of our habit patterns and think, you know, what do I want to perpetuate? How do I want to steer things differently moment to moment? How can I use my practice to slow myself down enough to see this and make more conscious, thoughtful determinations? But now let's talk about that fifth category of causality, which is the Dharma Niyama. And that is a more selfless way of conducting our lives. And it really begins, um, check my time here. It really begins with the original vow in Sanskrit, uh, purva pranidhana, which can also be translated as prior vow. And in Japanese, it's hongan. And there's the characters for it. That first character there that looks like a tree with a little bar uh, to indicate the roots. It's like original or prior or fundamental. And then the next character there is vow. And the first character can mean original or initial. And the second one can mean desire or wish. And this is the vow that a bodhisattva makes when they first generate the thought of awakening or bodhicitta. Uh, and here you see this um, uh, stele <clears throat> is the... Um, the Brahmin Sumedha, I believe is his name. And he is bowing down before Deepamkara, an ancient primordial Buddha, whose name means uh, uh, the torch bearer or lamplight. And this Buddha was traveling down the road when Sumedha heard about him and he wanted to meet a Buddha. And he came out and he put his own hair over a muddy spot so that the Buddha would not get his feet wet or muddy. And then he made a vow before that Buddha that he too would like to attain Buddhahood, not merely our hotship and escape from birth and death, but to undertake the um, millennia long, well, more than that, really, um, like many, many countless lifetime long journey to build up the merit and wisdoms that he too could become a Buddha and teach others the Dharma so that uh, not only he would escape suffering, but other beings as well. And the idea is that this um, Brahman Sumedha eventually became Shakyamuni Buddha, but this is the moment when his journey began. Now this, this original vow can be expressed in different ways. And there's the idea that all bodhisattvas share um, this same fundamental wish to liberate all sentient beings. And then they have more specific vows that they can carry out. Uh, but the, as for the universal expression of that original vow in East Asian Buddhism, we often use the four, what are called the four all-embracing vows, the Shigu Segon. And I'm showing here the Soto Shu version. And this I believe is the, the, the way you use it specifically at Hartford Street. And it goes, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. And here you have the kanji characters, Shujo Muhen Segan Do, Bono Mujin Segan Dan, Homan Muryo Segan Gak, Butsudo Mujo Segan Jo. I'm sorry, what? Uh, 
Now, the Nitrin shoe version I just found out is different. And <laughs> this is curious. I've been, I've been working for several years on a dictionary of Buddhist terms for Nitrin shoe. And I discovered that the characters that are used are a little different for the four vowels. And yet the translation was the same. And somewhere along the line, somebody did an English translation of the four vowels for Nitrin Shu that was based on the Zen version rather than the kanji we actually use. And I finally figured it out and retranslated the four vowels using the kanji that we use. So I'm just gonna show that and make a brief comment on them. Uh, sentient beings are infinite. I vow to liberate them all. Defilements are innumerable. I vow to resolve them all. Dharma gates are inexhaustible. I vow to know them all. The way of the Buddha is unsurpassed. I vow to become it. Um, so it goes, Shujo muhen segan do, bono mushu segan dan, homan mujin segan chi, butsudo mujo segan jo. So where it's different is in the, uh, let's see, the, mu, the mujin becomes mushu, and the Muryo becomes Mujin. And let me explain the resolve them all. So Sagan Dan, the second term, the very last character can mean to cut off or to end. But in Nichiren Buddhism, you know, we talk about Bono Soko Bodai, the defilements are themselves awakening. And this is a term that's used a lot by Tiantai Juri. And what he means is not to indulge desires and attain awakening. What he means is when you're sitting in meditation or even going about your daily life, you look into your defilements because that's probably what is going to be most immediately apparent to you. So you use what you have and what you have to deal with. And you look deeply into that and you see the emptiness of the defilements. And so you kind of unpack that. And in that way, it's not like you're denying them or cutting them off or pretending they're not there, but you're resolving them. You're, you're reworking all of that energy. And this is something that, you know, I also find in Theravadan Buddhism, the idea that uh, the lustful person should use devotional meditation practices uh, because that way they're, they're turning their clinging into a more positive direction. The angry person should use an analytical meditation because they're already critical. So you turn the criticism into a more positive direction. So, you know, on the one sense, you're, you're taking what is there and you're redirecting it. In another sense, you're taking what is there and realizing that it, like anything else, is empty, is interdependent, is such. So that's why I chose to say resolve rather than simply end. And then Sagan Chi, uh, that last character there is a character for no. So I put no there. Although I really like the idea of Dharma gates are inexhaustible. I vow to enter them. I like that idea that you enter not just with your mind, your thoughts, but, but your whole body and mind come into the practice. And then finally, uh, the, the way of the Buddha is unsurpassed, I vow to become it. Um, that last character there, Joe, uh, means to it can mean to attain, but it can also mean to become or transform. And I like that that non-duality between the way and ourselves and Buddhahood. So this is the expression of the Dharma Niyama thread that conditions our lives, not just our karmic 
self-oriented habit patterns, but also this more selfless way of operating and approaching things. And so that enters the stream that creates each moment. And this brings about what's called transmigration with change in advance. And so by the way, I, I think I forgot to mention this idea of transmigration with limitations and differences or this transmigration with change in advance come, I believe uh, from the Srimala Sutra. And the Japanese, this is Hinyaku Shoji. So it's the idea that the rebirth taken up by the Bodhisattvas in order to accumulate merit and wisdom needed to attain Buddhahood are rebirths that are purposely chosen, especially the very advanced Bodhisattvas. They're not just passing from one life to another in confusion and delusion and impulsiveness. They're, they're able to be much more mindful and purposeful of this situation requires a bodhisattva activity, or in this situation, I could better uh, cultivate merit and wisdom. So there's transmigration with change and limit, uh, with uh, limitations and differences, which is traveling in a diluted way around the six lower worlds, or there is this uh, transmigration with change in advance that comes about through following these bodhisattva vows and being able to take more and more control over the direction of your life through cultivation. Now, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers the movie Little Buddha with Keanu Reeves. This is a picture from that. Um, when the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree in the, uh, so I have a very long passage here, which I'm not gonna read, but it's from the medium length discourses. He described what he, recollected in each of the three watches of the night. And in the second watch of the night, he began to, uh, no, sorry, I think it was in the, in the first watch of the night, actually, he started to recollect his past lives. And he says, I collected my manifest past lives. It is one birth, two births, three, a thousand, a hundred, eon after eon of even the world expanding and contracting uh, what he was named, what his family was like, uh, the different forms of nut appearance, nutriment, pleasures, pains, all of that. He said, thus with their aspects and particulars, I recollected my manifold past lives. This was the first true knowledge attained by me in the first watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who dwells diligent, ardent, Etc. And then he began to see all the past lives of other beings and where they were going based on their actions and the, the threads of causality that they were involved in. And then finally, in the third watch of the night, he was able to abstract from all of that experience that he had suddenly recollected the nature of the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination. And I think my takeaway from this is that in that first watch of the night, at the very, very least, what he did in the very beginning was think about what brought him to that place. What, was, what were all of the causes and conditions, especially the ones chosen by him, whether out of ignorance in some previous life or out of his past vows that enabled him to be at that spot, sitting in that way with that determination that would lead to his awakening? And 
this way of recollecting how all of these threads came together is what started this whole cascading process of recalling all these past lives and then thinking about all the lives of other beings and then being able to abstract this great insight of how things work. So here's the question, you know, what is happening to us in each moment? Is it the result of karma or is it the result of a past vow? And there's a passage in the Lotus Sutra I'd like to share where the Buddha is talking about his disciple Purna and how uh, Purna is one of the, the major arhat disciples. But in chapter eight of the Lotus Sutra, the Buddha is saying that Purna has really been a bodhisattva all along, not merely an arhat. And out of skillful means, he has shown himself to be an arhat to teach others. And in the verse section, it gets a little more radical than that. I'm going to read from the beginning of the verses and this is just a part of it that's on the screen. Monks, listen to me attentively, because they are well-learned and skillful means, the way practiced by the children of the Buddha is beyond conception. Knowing that living beings delight in lesser teachings and are daunted by greater wisdom, the bodhisattvas therefore take the form of Shravakas and Pracheka Buddhas. In other words, the voice hearer, disciples, and the privately awakened ones, the hermits. Employing skillful means, they transform every type of living being saying of themselves, we are Shravakas, far removed from the Buddha way. They liberate innumerable living beings who will all have success. Even the indolent and those with lesser aspirations will eventually become Buddhas. Concealing their bodhisattva deeds within while maintaining a voice hearer facade of few desires and a weariness of the cycles of birth and death and truth, their purifying Buddha lands. So these, these uh, shravakas, these voice hearers are actually bodhisattvas. But then he says, and here's where I have the uh, citation up on the screen. In truth, uh, oh, sorry. When my disciples show themselves to living beings as having the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion, <clears throat> are the attributes of distorted views, they are liberating living beings with these skillful means. If I completely explain their various manifestations and transformations, living beings who heard about it would harbor doubt and confusion. So, you know, which is the deluded habit pattern of karma that we keep perpetuating and which is the uh, momentum of past bodhisattva vows and what is coming up for us in each moment and, and, as this passage is saying, they're, they're kind of inextricably twined together. Part of the skillful way of teaching a bodhisattva is to take on the human condition, or not just the human condition, but the, all those six worlds, the condition of sentient beings who are deluded and confused and trying to work out um, this greed, hatred, and delusion until they can work through it, until it reveals its suchness, until it becomes compassion and patience and wisdom. So here I have this ambiguous image, which, you know, I, I'm not sure how each of you are seeing that initially, but one way of looking at this picture is it's a lamp. Another way of looking at it is it's two people uh, facing each other. Which is it? Is it two people or is it a lamp? You know, is it karma or is it a vow? And I think that when we are sitting in our and doing our practice, 
as I've said several times before, we, we slow ourselves down enough or we stop just taking for granted that things are happening to us or that this is just the way we are. And we can really see that part of what is happening to us, a large part is us. It is a reflection of us. It is a reflection of the way we choose to react and respond. <clears throat> and these habit patterns that we have can be changed. And in fact, there may be more to them than we think. Um, and we really find our true purpose, excuse me, our true purpose in life, our true vow, our, uh, that, that original vow, the Honggan, by really looking into what are our patterns in our life and what may be a different way of relating to them and interpreting them. You know, maybe it isn't all just negativity. Maybe it's the working out of something that will be liberating for ourselves and the people around us. Uh, so let me talk a, about a way of contemplation that relates to all this. Um, there is a really curious practice in the Vasudhimaga, uh, the Path of Purification, which is a fifth century meditation manual uh, written by Buddha Gosha. And it is a way of thinking backwards through one's life. And it starts off like this. So a, a bhikkhu, a monk who is a beginner and wants to recollect in this way, recollect his past lives, should go into solitary retreat or return from his alms round after his meal. Then he should attain the four jhanas the, or Zen states really um, until, until uh, I don't want to go through what all the four are, but the point is that when cultivating the jhanas, eventually, hopefully you arrive at a state of single pointed mindfulness and equanimity with just what is uh, attain the four jhanas in succession and emerge in the fourth jhana as a basis for direct knowledge. He should then advert to his most recent act of sitting down for this purpose. Next to the preparation of the seat, to the entry to the lodging. And then it just goes backwards through putting away his bowl, eating his meal, coming back from the alms round, being on the alms round, setting out for the alms round and just like go backwards through everything and then go backwards through the day before and the year before and, and so on, so on until you get to the point where you're trying to remember being born and then try to push backwards through that. It's a very curious practice. Um, so the whole point of this is to better reflect on one's life events, I think, uh, not so much just trying to like remember some alleged past life, but really reflect on what's happened to you, your experiences, your choices, and where they have led. Uh, what helped you find your purpose? What distracted from it? What brought you here to this moment? Is this where you want to be? Are you doing what you want to be doing? What are you drawn to? What do you resonate to? What is your unique Dharma position in all of this? So reflecting on all the things that have happened to you is reflecting on what brought you here to this, to this moment of practicing and, and to really appreciate that, appreciate the negative things that brought you to this moment of practice, appreciate the positive things, 
appreciate the fact that whether something is negative or positive is your interpretation. It may not be simply negative or positive. Is it karma or is it vow? And it goes on to say the knowledge that arises in him then together with that consciousness is what is called knowledge, the recollection of the past life. Sorry, I forgot that that was there. And here's a little saying that I really like um, that kind of sums it up. We sow a thought and reap an act. We sow an act and reap a habit. We sow a habit and reap a character. We sow a character and reap a destiny. Uh, this is apparently an anonymous 19th century English aphorism that we, uh, I was unable to track down any particular person who said this, but I really like that. And, and I like that we can sit and do our practice and appreciate how we are creating our own destiny through our character, through the things that we have done and the way we have chosen to interpret things. And all of this stuff is coming together in this moment, but that doesn't overdetermine the moment because right here is where we need to pull everything together and figure out what to make of it all, what we want to make of it. Do we want to make it into another moment of perpetuating karma or a moment where we are able to turn all this into the working out of our vow as bodhisattvas? And with that, I bring the talk to a conclusion. I hope it wasn't too long. I think I went 45 minutes, maybe 50. <laughs> so uh, uh, I guess if there's, if anyone has any question or comment, I'll take them now. Otherwise, thank you for giving me this opportunity to present. Anybody? I have a comment over here. Can you hear me? I, can. I can hear you now. Yes. Okay. Um, I just found the. I, I'd heard the, the thing about the thought and the act, the act and the habit, and all. I heard it a little differently, and it kind of wrapped it up in some sort of cautionary: be careful with the thought because of all those things. And I tried to do research too, and some people, I don't think, correctly pointed to Lao yeah, no, <laughs> not at all. I, was like, I don't think so. Um, but uh, that wasn't my point. Uh, I just was having this discussion about uh, purpose and with some friends. And I don't know, my overwhelming feeling is they were telling me their purpose. These are people, my friends who have children and all these things, and they have a purpose around that. My overwhelming feeling when we discussed it was like, I don't, I don't think they have a purpose. <laughs> I guess I struggle with that, that word. Yeah. Um, maybe purpose is a bit too much, but you know, what, what is it that you, I, okay. I'm just speaking for myself here. What is it that I am most suited to? What is it that I keep finding myself drawn to? And I think, again, speaking only for myself, what is it that I, that life seems to be what is it that I can contribute that I'm able to contribute that life seems to be calling out to me to do? And sometimes I, I think some people's purpose may not be what they think it is. Um, but, you know, that's a very private 
thing. And I think that's the difference between the or the the uh, generic four vowels of a bodhisattva and in particular vowels of bodhisattvas. So like Medicine King has 12 vowels and Amitabha had 48 vowels and uh, Samantha Bhadra has these 10 vowels in the Flower Garland Sutra and they all have these particular vowels. And I think that's a nice symbolic way for Mahayana Buddhism at any rate to say, you know, if, if we made vowels in a past life, and for whatever reasons, we're not remembering them. Like, just go deep into yourself and see what seems to be, what do I seem to be working towards, even though I'm not aware of it? I don't know if that's helpful at all. But. Yeah, I, think so. I mean, it's, I feel like it's an, kind of saying like it's an aspiration, but not one that you necessarily know. Maybe like it's sometimes in life, it feels like you just get pushed in direction or things yeah. coming up in a certain area or something like that. And maybe that. Right. It could be your purpose is to look into that. Is that kind of maybe? Exactly, exactly. And and I think that's the whole point of this this so-called exercise to recall past lives is, is really you're just going you're going over your life and seeing what is the pattern of it. Um, where does it seem to be leading for better or worse? And trying to gain some insight um, through that process of just reflecting on the the events and experiences and and patterns in one's life and including i think even in this indian context where um i i think sometimes they related to their daydreams or to these seeming memories or narratives that pop up as oh that must be from a past life you know um what is it that our mind is drawn to we don't necessarily have to relate to it as a past life but um, yeah, my father, for instance, always seemed to have been very drawn to the um, 18th century France and and the French Revolution and all that kind of thing. And and I often wondered, you know, why did that period speak to him so much? You know, what was it about that? Um, I've been very drawn to Japan just about my whole life, you know, and that has been very fruitful. So just kind of you know look at that too. You know, what what are you drawn to that may be outside your immediate frame of reference and why would that have so much meaning to you you know now in, in that again in that ancient indian context they would say well because you were you you were born in a past life uh, in france and lived through the french revolution or you used to be a peasant in japan in the 13th century <laughs> like we don't have to relate to it that way we can just look at it and go okay what is it about that that speaks to me uh, how does, why would that resonate for me? And what can that tell me about what I should be doing? You don't want to be the emperor of Japan. You want to be a peasant. <laughs> right, right. You know. Usually it's Cleopatra or something, you know, a little more glamorous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, and that's something to be aware of, you know, not, not to just indulge in egotism. You know, maybe maybe all it is is just escapism. But then what are you escaping from? And then you go on to that. And that leads to some other insight. Uh, I see Janos raised his hand. Yes, thank you here for your wonderful, insightful Dharma talk. Uh, I'm wondering if you can speak to how um, catastrophic uh, events can uh, shake us and in terms of our resolve and purpose um, 
in our practice to the point where, you know, it's like as much as we have a focus, you know, to provide um, our, our work in a certain way, realizing, you know, this, this, I, I just, it has just so shaken me, you know, whether that be, you know, someone who is a, uh, care provider, you know, or rescue worker, and then you go into the tsunami that happened, you know, there in Southeast Thailand, or currently where I am, you know, a a psychotherapist, and the world is upside down, you know, in terms of with this worldwide pandemic, and, um, you know, trying to provide services to people who are in crisis, and, especially young people who see like their whole future is devastated and you can't socialize. And so it um, causes, you know, them to despair. And you're seeing this despair, you know, uh, after on a, on a mass level. And so it, it's really caused me to sort of burn out and reflect that, as much as I I love this work, I, I can't I, I can't keep doing this in this certain time. Or a firefighter who goes through Greenville and they love you know helping, mm-hmm. they're just devastated. Yeah. And so it's like using our work, and I, I I hear the quiver in my voice of like how this is so upsetting me to say you know maybe I I just need to stop. You know, or like Mother Teresa is going, there's so much famine, so much, so much uh, disease here. I just can't keep doing this work. And we, you know, to use our practice to say, you know, maybe to channel for a while because in a different way, because, you know, bringing compassion to ourselves, just, just can't keep going on. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, the thing that immediately strikes me is that if, if when you read the gospels jesus takes off sometimes you know he just like heads for the hill literally heads for the hills and gets some time alone and I, I that's that's just remarkable really that this tradition which says this is the son of god this is in some sense god entering in the human condition to be present with us and even he needs to take a time out <laughs> on occasion. Um, I, I think that's a really important thing to think about. Um, now, from, from a more Buddhist perspective, I'm also thinking that we initially approach our practice, I know I do, or, or, or did and still do, with a lot of idealism. You know, I'm going to be such a wonderful person after I do all these practices, and then I will be able to fix things for people. And, you know, I, I remember when I was uh, in uh, college, an undergrad, um, I lived on uh, 40th Street in uh, West Philadelphia and, and uh, was very much part of the punk scene and, and uh, the squatter community there. And I was like one of the more stable <laughs> people there. And so they called me the sage of 40th street, you know, and, but I, I look back on that period and I was, I was so kind of foolish and full of myself and way too idealistic and, and thinking that, you know, I could make myself the kind of person who can fix problems for everyone. And 
life's just not like that. And one of the things that Buddhism does is deliberately try to disillusion you. It deliberately tries to disillusion you of yourself and the idea of this masterful self that can make everything right for you and even for other people, which is kind of egotistical. Um, it disillusions you that this world is fixable. It disillusions you that there's some endpoint where everybody gets to coast and be happy. Even the heavenly realms, as I was saying, is just one of those six realms, and you can only be in any of them for a certain time. So in a, in a sense, the heavenly realm is a setup for another fall. And there's just this, this constant process of disillusionment. And yet, Buddhism's also saying that within this disillusionment, you find these opportunities for compassion and release and letting go and just being present with people in suffering and in your own suffering. Uh, but to, to really realize that, I think you have to step back and just immerse yourself in your own practice and let go of the idea that you can fix things for anybody else or fix the world or even fix yourself. You just got to just let go and be present with it. And that's, you know, that's the only thing I can think to say about that. And it is, it is painful and it is hard, but I think it is less hard than continually clinging to the idea that I can be the one to make this better for everyone. And, and, why aren't things the way I think they should be? And that's just part of the whole deluded network that Buddhism's trying to free you from, disillusion you so you can be free from it, so that you can then enter back into this mess with more open hands and, and, a, and a heart that is not tense, but more raw and open, I guess. That doesn't sound very encouraging to me, <laughs> the way I'm saying it. But maybe I hope I hope it is on some level. It's the only thing that I can think of for myself in my own practice. I, I've had a very hard time uh, recently myself because I, I just came back from visiting uh, with my father, uh, who is entering the first stages of dementia and has heart problems and and uh, edema in his legs. So his legs are swollen up like balloons. And just the, the um, you know, the, the whole situation is such a mess and so extremely disillusioning on so many levels, um, very painful. And yet there's also, you know, it, it's not a situation I would want to avoid or run away from either. I mean, that's my father and that's my family and I love them. And uh, the, the, the only thing that can truly be worthwhile is to just be with it you know so no it, it it is uh what i gathered here from you is one is uh you know stepping back some for myself from this but also detaching more from you know my um uh, clinging necessarily to the outcome that you know is again reminding you know even in all of the catastrophes and disasters around us that uh, I, I don't have any um, effect on the outcomes here. I just do what I can. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a large part of what our practice does, whether it's, it's sitting facing the blank wall or facing the mandala and chanting Daimoku. It's, it's 
trying to teach us how to just sit and be with things as they are. Mm -hmm. uh, Ryue-san, excuse me, I think I'm going to intervene here. Sure. It's, uh, half past 11, so I think we can probably stop for now. Okay. Would you like to uh, do the Daimoku chant again before we do ours? Yes, sure. All right, thank you all very much. I, again, really appreciate being with you all and participating in these discussions and look forward to the next time. Namu myoho denge kyo. Namu myoho denge kyo. Namu myoho denge kyo.